Have you ever asked yourself, am I a bad therapist? Well, you're in the right place. I'm Allie Joy, licensed professional counselor and registered art therapist. And I'm Catherine Escare, a clinical psychologist, and this is Am I a Bad Therapist? Join us each week for stories from behind the closed therapy door. You'll hear experiences that made us ask, am I a bad therapist? Including bloopers, jaw droppers, and other difficult moments that normalize the unique struggles of modern day therapists. This is a space with no experts, no gurus, and no hierarchies, just humans sitting in similar chairs. And while we're not the gatekeepers for good and bad therapy, because we're bad therapists too, we are here to shine a light on the difficult decisions therapists face on a daily basis and normalize that mysterious gray area of clinical practice that no one wants to talk about. Our mission on Am I a Bad Therapist is to normalize and humanize our existence as therapists. You can help us spread this message by subscribing and leaving us a review wherever you are right now, whether that's YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, you know the drill. You can also help us by sharing Am I a Bad Therapist with your network, whether it's on social media, your stories, or just between colleagues. Every listener helps us make a difference in this field, and we'll always reshare if you tag us. If you're listening to the podcast, make sure to check out our pretty faces on our YouTube channel. And if you're watching us on YouTube, make sure to head over to our podcast and leave a review. You can find all of our links in the notes below. We pick a few lucky five-star reviewers to shout out and invite for a 15-minute consultation with the both of us to talk about anything on your mind. From clinical work to podcasting, we're game. Just make sure to leave us your name and location in the review. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So, Catherine, uh, with the work that we do, we have to talk about diagnosing a lot, right? But it can be very challenging at times. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And diagnoses are absolutely not everything in the therapy room. But a lot of times we have to work with them for insurance purposes, for research purposes, um, for treatment planning. Like diagnoses are part of what we do. Um, and sometimes, you know, we have clients who don't agree with what we come up with as a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so we're going to hear from Hannah, who is going to share her story about how she was trying to work with a client, but their parent did not agree with her diagnosis. It led to some verbal things being said to her, and ultimately, we'll find out what happened, but it did not end well. Not at all. So just a friendly reminder that this episode is for entertainment purposes. It's not a substitution for clinical consultation, ethical guidance, or therapy itself. All right. Well, this is episode number 17 of Am I a Bad Therapist? Let's get into it. Well, Hannah, welcome to Am I a Bad Therapist? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're at in your career, how you got there? Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Hannah Delano. I'm a licensed professional counselor in Northern Virginia. I actually just um, finished my license in May or had it 
issued. So and I finished grad school in 2017. So it's kind of a long journey. Um, we're a military family, so that just makes everything a little harder. But um, I've worked in pretty much most settings I could think of. I've worked at a college counseling center, a psychiatric hospital, um, private practice, in-home work, at a school. So, And now I'm just doing outpatient therapy at my practice. So I've kind of been all over the map. I've had quite the diverse experience. Before I get into your story, I need to know, like, did you have a favorite setting? Like you chose outpatient now. Was that a choice by necessity or is this what you've been hoping for? Did you have a favorite before that? I actually loved working at the hospital. It was just really fast paced and it was, I would do the intake assessments. So I'd get time with clients or patients, but also we would coordinate with the emergency rooms to find beds for patients. And we had like an office. So we were working with a bunch of people together. So it was a little more social than just regular private practice, which can be a little lonely sometimes. (laughs) I can definitely be lonely sometimes. Oh my gosh. I feel that a lot. So Hannah, you're going to share a story with us that happened while you were at a at uh, at your setting at a school environment. So, uh, tell us about why you're a bad therapist. Think about that every day. But um, so I was working at a high school, and um, my company was contracted in. So the school had like almost two thousand students, and they had four school counselors and one social worker. So they were just kind of stretched thin. So I would come in and I would work with just five or six students that needed the most support to try and keep them in the school um, instead of having to go to alternative school or be suspended, expelled. So it would be kids from behavioral issues to more emotional, like suicidal issues. Um, and I had just started working with a student and we do an assessment process to get it approved and started and that usually takes two or three hours to do so we meet with the student and the parent and do a lot of paperwork get a full history get releases for anyone they've worked with before um and because it's an insurance funded program we have to provide a diagnosis at the end um and so we do the assessment then later i do the diagnosis and write everything up so there's time between the assessment and meeting with the parent to go over the initial treatment plan. So I had met with the parent and I had kind of had, this was a tough parent. Like I was, I was kind of told before that they could be a little tough. Um, And the assessment process, they had a lot of questions, very thorough. They seemed a little unsure about everything. So when I met with them to go over the treatment plan, they actually had um, someone that they know really well at the school come into the meeting too, which I was fine with. Um, And as soon as we started the meeting and I, you know, gave her a copy of the treatment plan, she saw the diagnosis and she just got very upset with me about what it was. Um, So this was actually something that had been chosen by the director of the program, like in coordination with me, but she had the final say of what it was. 
So do you want me to go more into what what the parent did? Yeah. So let me, let me get this straight. So you had just started working with this patient. You, it sounds like you have a really thorough intake process, which actually yeah. sounds quite luxurious. Sometimes I have to get intakes quick. A lot of paperwork. Okay. It's not that luxurious. Um, and you consulted with the director, forgive me if I'm using the wrong title, but the center director and came up with a appropriate diagnosis. You share this mm-hmm. with the patient the patient's mother and the and, and another school person who was there and the mother is upset about the diagnosis. Yes, she was very upset. She she started like raising her voice at me, um, saying that I was unprofessional, that why is this diagnosis on paper before it had been gone over with her. And I tried to explain that this was the initial treatment plan and the purpose of the meeting was to go over it to have her sign it. So nothing was like approved by her yet. Um, but she just kind of escalated and, and I'm a people pleaser. I don't like conflict. So I was like behind my desk wanting to cry. Um, she called me unprofessional, said that therapists can't diagnose. Um, so just a lot of things. And I was kind of I've never had an experience with a client or a parent like that. So it just threw me off a lot. And I'm glad someone else was in there with me, but. I bet. So you had said um, you had heard this, that they might be a little bit difficult. Did they have a history with the school of maybe of like saying things or how did you get that warning? If you can speak to that at all about the parent. I think they had several kids at the school and I just knew um, from administration and um, other school staff, um, like the fair amount of history of coming up there often, getting, um, being unhappy with things often. She was um, just very unsure of the whole program from the beginning. So I had heard of other interactions like that. So I knew it wasn't just me, but um, I definitely wasn't expecting that level. Right. <laughs> yeah, reaction. I was going to say. Even with the warning, I'm sure your brain didn't think, you know, it didn't create that scenario in your head per se. Um, So what was running through your mind? I know you said you kind of felt like you wanted to cry. What else was going through your head at that moment when she was questioning not only your diagnosis, but your clinical capabilities? What were you thinking? Yeah, well, I was fairly new to working at the school. So I was worried, you know, if the parent had more relationship with school staff, you know, what they would think of me. Um. Was, was this the right diagnosis? Was this the right call? How will this impact the student? Because the student wasn't in the meeting um, at that time. Mm. So just, I didn't know what to do. Um, so I was just kind of sitting there shell-shocked. <laughs> I can absolutely relate to this. I was once an once an intern. I feel like I'm always still interning in life. Uh, I was an intern and I was doing an organizational uh, consultation, like a weekend consultation um, with a pretty large high-powered group. And I was helping my supervisor implement just an intervention, an org intervention. Um, And as soon the, this board of directors all older men. I'm like still in graduate school in my early twenties, young female. And they waited till my supervisor who was about their age, um, left 
and they just ripped me like ripped me apart. They like went after like the the efficacy, the strategy, everything. And I just remember I, I when you're telling the story, I have not thought about that moment in so long. And when you're telling me like sitting behind your desk, hi, like standing behind your desk wanting to cry while they tear you apart, like that feeling of just inadequacy and like, but I'm the one supposed to be steering the ship here is, is absolutely so intimidating and, and, and unsettling. And so I think I can relate to what you went through. Maybe not exactly, but, um, let's pause here for a quick ad break. Are you looking to incorporate more creativity into your clinical practice, but don't know where to start? As a registered art therapist, I truly believe that every clinician can utilize creativity in what they do. I absolutely love offering consultation and supervision to share with clinicians how to ethically incorporate therapeutic art making into their clinical practice. I focus on easy and simple interventions with very little prep work for you and your clients. Visit www.cccs.care to learn more. By the way, the number one support for those of us asking ourselves, am I a bad therapist? Our clinical consultation groups. If you don't have one yet, join us on the Teletherapist Network for unlimited peer consultation groups, including a lot of different specialty groups like clinicians of color, LGBTQ+, couples counseling, EMDR, and of course, Creativity in the Clinical Room hosted by me, Allie, plus masterclasses, media leads, and everything else you need for an ethical, modern clinical practice. Join us at teletherapistnetwork.com. And now back to the show. So Hannah, your story has resonated so much with me because I have shared before on the podcast, I worked in a school-based health center in schools and I loved it, but it was challenging to be like in a mental health world while also functioning in the educational world. So I'm curious, do you think that this parent had some concern about the diagnosis somehow being on the educational record? Like, do you think that played a piece into what was going on? Like thinking that it wasn't separate or things like that? was a big part of it because the student had an IEP. So I don't think the parent fully understood that our program was fully separate from the school because it was a, an insurance funded program. It had nothing to do with the school. So all the confidentiality would reply, apply there. Um, some records were shared with the social worker, but I think there was some concern there about maybe the school finding out. And I know the student had had a full psych eval done before, but the parent wouldn't share it with us. So that was kind of, because hmm. if, if the client has a previous diagnosis, we'll just use that instead of right. coming up with our own. So that was one of the, the problems too. Yeah. Did they say, like, do you, I mean, it sounds like they didn't share much, but it did seem like they didn't agree with that diagnosis as well. Or did you get any more information around why they wouldn't share? They, I didn't talk to the parent about that a lot. I, that was mm-hmm. through the, the school worker that was close with the parent. Um, they wouldn't even share it with them, really. So maybe they just didn't agree. I don't know mm-hmm. the parent's full views on mental health. So I think they just maybe didn't fully understand what their child was going through. Mm-hmm. So all of this, all of this conflict came up just solely around the student's diagnosis and you don't have to share what the diagnosis was or how you came to it but you know 
were you confident that that diagnosis was accurate or was there wiggle room that maybe this parent was coming from a place of, of, of accuracy? Was one of the things was could, what could we change if we could change it what would we change it to and the director said we're not going to change the integrity of the diagnosis just because the parent doesn't like it so mm-hmm. um I mean I I know it's hard from a two-hour assessment to come up with a fully accurate diagnosis so then I'm always kind of hesitant to do a more um severe diagnosis I guess you would say but there was some some concern about some psychotic features. So I think that's what the parent mm. had the most problem with. I can and see I think that. It's, yeah, I was going to say, I can see that too. Um, it just sounds like I wish, and I'm sure you did too, like that it was just handled differently of like, you know, it's totally acceptable for clients to ask us questions around diagnosing. And especially if it is, you know, maybe something they consider more intense. Um, but I'm, confident that you would have been willing to have that discussion. So it's interesting their response to you. Yeah, I don't think they wanted to to hear. Like I went through the checklist of how the diagnosis was decided upon, the process of what happened, how we recommend a full evaluation be done, that it was just a provisional diagnosis. Um, they just weren't happy. So how did this meeting, this was you, another school employee, and and the parent, how did this end and what did you do next as you're sitting there trying not to cry? I tried to, I just, because I was still a resident at the time, so I wasn't fully licensed. So I, I kind of could fall back on saying that I would have to go to my supervisor about it and see what could be done. So the meeting kind of ended there with me explaining that I would have to talk to them if we could change the diagnosis to something that they would be more agreeable with, because at that point, they weren't going to sign the treatment plan. And without that, we couldn't continue the service. So that was kind of the end of the the meeting there. Who was um, the other? Oh, I'm sorry, Katie. I was curious, who was the school person you said that was with you? What was their role? They were... They were one of the special education staff, so that they supported the client in the classroom okay. in re- relation to their IEP. Gotcha. Okay. I was just curious about that piece, too. Mm-hmm. And so this meeting kind of ended with the termination of services, huh? I called my supervisor after, and they consulted with the director and everything, and the director basically said that we weren't going to change the diagnosis. So they offered a couple options, like writing on the treatment plan that the parent didn't consent, but they consented with the goals. Um, But the parent wasn't willing to sign anything with the diagnosis on it. So we had to terminate services. And that was still with two or three months of school left. Wow. And did you ever get to debrief with the child, with the student, with the patient? Yeah, that was that was probably the hardest part for me as I had a really strong rapport with the client and they weren't very trusting of a lot of people. Like they would just come to my office a lot wanting to talk things through. I had to de-escalate them from getting in a fight a couple times. 
Um, so they actually, after the meeting with the parent, they walked in my office later and I kind of had to say, hey, we have to talk um, and had to tell them that we, I wouldn't be able to work with them anymore. So that was really hard for me because I knew they, they kind of relied on my support. Wow, that must have been so hard. I had to frame it in a way that wasn't blaming the parent. You know, I had to explain that um, that's their parent, that's their right. Um, they know the child the best. So the client had a lot of conflict with the parent, so that didn't really mm-hmm. help. It's just a sad situation overall because they, they really needed the help and they couldn't get it. That is all of, all of our diagnosis. Yeah. And there's so much talk in our fields about the utility or the efficacy or just just why we continue to use diagnoses. And, you know, we, we could spend we could have a whole podcast discussing yeah. the, the both sides of that. So, you know, without getting into that, like it, it, it just that one hinging point. This is just a critical example of how important diagnoses are in today's treatment world. Right. So important that you cannot continue services without them in some in some environments and also so impactful that people will terminate services because of the diagnosis. And I think this is a a clear example of of the dichotomy of of diagnoses. Yeah. And then it's so hard, too, when the client, you know, the student wanted the treatment. And that's like in Connecticut, we do have this provision um, where like, I think it's over 16, um, a child, you know, the student, like a client can consent and they can get access to six services, like sessions without parental consent. And then it can be renewed and refreshed. But it feels really yucky to me. Like, it's very difficult to go down that route or like to think about it. Um, Because again, we always want parental consent, of course, but we also want to treat you know, the client who needs it. So even here in my state of Connecticut, it gets really tricky of like, if a parent doesn't agree, you know, again, we have some wiggle room legally, but it doesn't feel great clinically um, or as a person. Mm -hmm. So it's just really hard to see though when we have someone who wants services that we can't, we can't give them. Mm -hmm. A lot of clinicians I work with won't even work with minors because they don't want to deal with the parent child dynamic and confidentiality and everything. Yeah. And that's so, that's so sad. I, I see the point. I see the the need to protect your own energy as a clinician, but you know, in my area, there's such a shortage of clinicians that work with children and adolescents. It's such in dire need. And, you know, a lot of that is coming from this the ambiguity and the messiness and the murkiness, which is what we deal with on a daily basis, mm-hmm. which is what this we talk about every every episode, but particularly with with child patients where the parent um, is a major factor in their treatment. Yeah, it's similar here too in Connecticut, um, where most providers. Um, like when you're looking for a provider to work with children, most people have to go through agencies because a lot of yeah. um, private practice owners, group practice clinicians are very similar where they don't work with kids. And again, if it's not your thing, it's not your thing. But it's very challenging when you're trying to connect people with services. Um, and it can be so complicated of like, you know, that piece of it. So I see both sides, but it doesn't make it easy either way. Oh, oh. talking about all the goods, the bads and the in-betweens, right? So, so- Hannah... 
Um, well, I'm sure we were about to ask the same question, Katie, Catherine. Um, Hannah, what would you say to another clinician who was going through something like this? What advice would you give? Like, what did you kind of see in hindsight? What would you say? I would say um, to definitely consult with your supervisor and kind of process, you know, knowing that you have the clinical skills and you have the training, um, even if a parent is questioning it, that you're the professional in the situation. Um, and then kind of, I had to take some time after that to kind of like I cried in my car on the way home. Um, but I called a couple people and I felt better after that. Um, and just, I knew the parent was coming from the place of love for their child and concern for their child. So I tried not to take it personally from the parent. That's a beautiful statement. Try not to. It's so hard not to. It's mm-hmm. almost impossible not to, but absolutely. Um, it was different perspectives. Um, and th- both of you were concerned and wanted to help help the client. Beautifully put. And have you encountered any situations like this since then where a patient or a patient's guardian has really um, uh, conflicted with you? I was trying to just think of that a minute ago. I haven't had a situation that severe where I was kind of, that it was almost aggressive in a way um, mm-hmm. that I was concerned. Um, you know, working in the hospital, we would have um, patients come in involuntary. So um, if they were an adult, family members would be trying to call to see if they were there and we couldn't tell them or parents would be very unhappy that the child was committed and we didn't have any say in that process. You know, that was through the court. So I've definitely dealt with people being unhappy, but never to, to that degree. That level. Do you think you'd do anything differently next time? Cause there will be a next time. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think I would try to hold my ground and try and be more confident. I was still a resident at that time. So, you know, imposter syndrome is real. And even with my license, I still, still feel it. Trying to stick to your clinical guns, I guess you would say. Um, and just try and be, I tried to be as calm as I could. I'm pretty, um, pretty calm personality. So I didn't react to the parent. That's the part I have the most trouble. I want my, I'm a very (laughs) reactive person. So, um, I can, I can relate to that. My struggle is to stay calm. I can stick to my guns, but (laughs) I can't stay calm. (laughs) It seems like you're the vice versa. I think it's important to pay attention to the, the other end of the spectrum where like, I like to avoid conflict. So just kind of keeping in mind, am I making this choice because I don't want conflict or is this the, mm-hmm. the best choice to make? Oh, that's a really good point. I like that. That's a good like self-awareness there to make sure it's not our stuff coming into the room. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, um, Hannah, if anyone does want to connect with you outside of the podcast, how can they find you? Um, I have a Psychology Today page, and I'm a member of the Teletherapist Network. I haven't dove into the world of professional social media yet, so I don't Mm -hmm. have an Instagram or anything like that, but they can also ask me for my email, too. 
Perfect. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story today. It was so great to hear, again, your like just self-awareness, how you handled this, um, and a story I'm sure many of our listeners can relate to. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that's it. The OG Bad Therapists, Allie and Catherine, are signing off for the week. Make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We pick a few lucky five-star reviewers to shout out and invite for a 15-minute consultation with the both of us to talk about anything on your mind. From clinical work to podcasting, we're game. Just make sure to leave us your name and location in the review. And are you a bad therapist and want to join us on the show? Go to abadtherapist.com and tell us your story. Our podcast is produced and edited by my amazing husband, Austin Joy. He also created the music for our intro and outro. You can find this song along with many others on any music platform under the artist Air For Effect. And if you're a bad therapist starting your own podcast, contact Austin for his full suite of podcast and sound production services. You can find him on Instagram at Air For Effect. And don't forget, we're all bad therapists.